I don't imagine that the cities that have carefully won back urban spaces that are walkable, desirable places to sit around and enjoy a coffee are going to allow them to be taken over by autonomous vehicles furiously running around the streets, totally uh, um, disturbing any kind of walkability and, and the kind of uh, ambience that, that we have won at great, um, at, in great political uh, activism. Uh, we're not going to give that up easily. Welcome to part three of the Mid-Century Books podcast with Peter Newman. So is there anything about the future of automobiles that you can comment on in terms of how they would fit in to a multimodal city with lots of transportation options and alternatives? For example, can you speak a little bit about car sharing or electric cars, self-driving cars? Uh, can you just speak a little bit to the future of automobiles? Yeah, the, um, uh, the future cities uh, are now a lot easier to see emerging. Um, we would, When we started out in this business, we just wanted to end automobile dependence. We wanted to overcome it. We weren't quite sure what it would mean in terms of new technologies, new, new urban forms. Uh, I think it's fairly clear now that the future city will be polycentric. There will be centres, uh, not just one business centre with some you know, intense activity around it, uh, which is the old um, model of cities. Um, there will be major centres in the suburbs that are dense, are walkable, have people living in them and working in them and lots of urban services. And that city centre can provide many of the services for the area around it. So people can get to that from suburbs, as in low-density, sprawling suburbs, um, but they've got something local. They've got nearby a place where they can get the, 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 the not just shops and schools and things, but, you know, childcare and, and, and uh, services, uh, health services and, and, um, and knowledge economy services. These will be located there. But these centres don't just happen. They don't happen around shopping centres where there's huge car parks. There's no, no great opportunity to do it that way. You have to really build rail. And urban rail creates these centres around it because people want to live and work near that. And the, they are very efficient in space. So you just do not need these massive great car parks. So increasingly, cities are taking their old shopping centres and converting them with urban rail into small cities. So um, Tyson's Corner in Washington, D.C. Is, is being converted from being an edge city totally dependent on the car to having a, the Dulles rail built through the middle of it with two light rails cutting across it. And it's, it's um, creating it a new kind of urban form that is there's still a lot of cars there it's it's very hard to convert it into a european city you know suddenly becoming barcelona or something it it's um and a lot of the original diagram um, pictures of what tyson's corner would look like did have that element 
Um, but it's it's nevertheless different. There are lots more options and there are a lot fewer car parts uh, and it's far less dominated by the automobile. So we're seeing the emergence of them and they are what is reducing car dependence quite rapidly. So car use is going down, uh, urban densities are going back up again in these focus centres um, and this is a common feature around the world. So we've now got uh, the whole sharing economy thing happening and working its way into transport, uh, Uber and uh, carpooling and, and these things are, are beginning. They're still quite small um, and they will never replace the need for the high uh, intensity um, mass transit systems, the, the rail systems that can bring 50,000 people an hour down one kilometre of track uh, into a centre. Uh, if you wanted to do that, you would need 20 times the space in freeways or in even in, with buses, uh, and at least 10 times the space. So you, the, the, the change is occurring, but they are not going to get away from the need for those urban centres. The o autonomous vehicles are being touted by the automobile industry as doing away with the need for uh, public transport. Uh, and you can see the way the buses that wind around in the suburbs looking for people um, may well be replaced by autonomous vehicles that are wandering around the suburbs looking for people. Um, but they will never be able to replace trains. Trains have significantly faster, higher capacity and even great platoons of autonomous vehicles going down a freeway will never get anywhere near the quantities of people that a train can take. So it is sheer urban space that will drive this and the economics of that is very, very clear. Um, I don't imagine that the cities that have carefully won back urban spaces that are walkable, desirable places to sit around and enjoy a coffee are going to allow them to be taken over by autonomous vehicles, furiously running around the streets, totally uh, um, disturbing any kind of walkability and, and the kind of uh, ambience that, that we have won at great, um, at, in great political uh, activism. Uh, we're not going to give that up easily. And the automobile industry would like to see it because they like to sell cars. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't f think that the uh, autonomous vehicle will be as transformative as people are saying it. We do talk about this in our book, The End of Automobile Dependence. There will be a role for autonomous vehicles. They will not take over our cities the way the first automobile revolution did. Uh, we've won that battle. So I think one of the things that's just so fascinating about your career was that when you very first came out with this term automobile dependence, this was a data-driven argument. And you were able to be convincing about this terminology because you had the numbers to back it up. We're now living in the era of so-called big data, where there's 
so much information at everybody's fingertips, it's almost hard to know what to do with it all. I am wondering, what was it like to gather up this data in the pre-personal computer era, the pre-internet era? How were you able to get all this data? Travel. Uh, one of the things that you, that marks out Australians is that they do like to travel. We're sure that the rest of the world is a better place than where we grew up. We're not too sure, so we've got to check it out. And we travel for long periods, like we go for six months or two years and we, 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 we take in the grand tour. Uh, this has been a very common feature of, of Australian uh, young people's lives, uh, certainly in my my time, and the uh, so the backpacker experience, if you like, um, and so Jeff Kenworthy and I started collecting data and found that we could not get it by writing. We had to go to the cities and knock on the doors of each of the transport agencies who didn't even talk to the other transport agencies. And they certainly didn't talk to the planning agency that had the density data or the local government that had the parking data. And we, we had to gather all of this together. And it was, uh, you know, a several weeks kind of exercise in any city. Uh, and Jeff was particularly good at, uh, at, burrowing in and finding the best way to do it and get that getting that data and 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 he he was the first one that went out and 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 went around and it took him nearly nine months of travel doing virtually nothing else um and and, uh collecting this information Uh, then i followed up i brought my wife and two small children around and we went to something like 40 cities um in a six-month period, uh, we weren't constantly data collecting. I certainly was moving between children's museums and so on at the same time as going to main roads departments. Um, and I, so I helped in that first era of data collection and we then wrote the book together and uh, I, I did most of the writing. Jeff does most of the data processing and, and certainly the collection. Um, and that, that uh, partnership has kept up. Uh, Jeff continues to keep the, the Global Cities database. Uh, he keeps it pretty much to himself, but it's, um, it is continuing to provide the data that we have in our books, and it is um, very helpful to see the trends. So we, we were one of the first to pick up that car use per capita had peaked, in the early 2000s and has continued to drop uh that was we we could have seen it coming we didn't really expect it to go down we thought it would continue to decline and then sort of plateau but it's not it's gone down and this is a a global phenomenon so you need lots of cities in the database to be able to make these conclusions and the rapid growth of public transport has just been dramatic so we've added lots more cities, a lot more uh, Indian and, and Chinese cities, for example, which are now dramatically growing and they're growing in a non-automobile dependent way. Uh, they have nothing like the car use per capita uh, and significantly better public transport and a lot more walking and biking. 
Uh, so those options are, are clearly there in those cities. And they're the great growth cities and they are now the models for all the emerging cities, how to be more like a Chinese or Indian city rather than an American or Australian city. So there's no fear left anymore that, that somehow all the Chinese cities are going to become like American cities. There's no, just no way that will happen. And uh, it, it's uh, very interesting now that the data we collect, we can do on the internet. Uh, it does help to go to the cities. You've got to get a sense of the, of the way they're working um, so the data makes sense. Um, but uh, certainly uh, the internet has made things a lot easier. So you have spent decades being an international activist academic. What is next for you for your work in writing? Yeah, the um, the, the new book is is really a, a summary of the the best uh, approaches that are now being taken to remove fossil fuels from our cities, and uh, I, I think we now know how to do it. And and it, so the latest book sets that out. And it's got uh, six key principles uh, or policy approaches, if you like. Um, and that is uh, tying in with the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, which now includes a city one. Uh, and it, is in, uh, it fits in with the um, IPCC agenda. Um, all of these um, big Global things are trying to achieve this 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 end, and you need to overcome automobile dependence if you're going to overcome fossil fuel dependence. My work, however, has got has always had this local and global element to it, and and I go between the two. But the the work locally is something that I write up, and in increasingly has become more important to tell those stories because they are the basis of how people change their own cities. And, and most cities are similar in the kinds of issues and the kinds of groups you have to overcome, the kinds of mindsets with freeway mindsets dominating still in, in, in traditional uh, roads departments and, and how you can overcome that and create a better option and um, those are the things that now really occupy me. So we started with a campaign in 1979 and been winning five or six elections since. The last one, uh, some really important um, lessons learned. There was a major freeway that was stopped and we are writing a book called Never Again Should This Kind of Plan for a Road Ever happen because it was so fundamentally wrong and that's being written with about 20 different professors who formed a group uh, that is that is helping in the writing of it because they're all uh, from their particular perspectives whether it was health or or, or the biodiversity or, or the transport planning or the the um economics of it the uh the the global um climate change implications, all of these things are being brought together in that story. So we, that's certainly a big agenda for us. Um, I am also tomorrow night flying to uh, 
the UK to be part of the IPCC uh, group that is uh, pushing for the next agenda, which is called the 1.5 degrees scenario. Um, the world has signed up to be to co commit to achieving a world that has uh, less than two degrees centigrade rise. It really has to be accelerated to the 1.5. Uh, the evidence is is that uh, although we are now reducing greenhouse gases in the world and we are decoupling the whole economy and economic growth is now happening without fossil the need for fossil fuels we can show that um, but it has to be done more quickly and we have to get to the point of actually dragging CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that 1.5 exercise, I'll be helping in the writing of that. Um, it's a very good combination of my activism and my academic world because it is uh, it, it is clearly a, a work of science that has to be done to show the world. Um, and I, I don't know quite whether we need a follow-up to the end of automobile dependence, whether the trilogy is actually going to need a follow-up, um, a, a, a postquel or a prequel or whatever, but it's. Um, uh, I, I would like to think that the basic arguments are, are all there now, and uh, it is just a matter of groups getting on and solving this problem, mainstreaming it to the point where we can show that uh, show our grandchildren actually that we change the nature of our cities they are now no longer automobile dependent well i think that that does wrap things up for us today i'm so glad that we were able to talk about both of your books the end of automobile dependence came out with island press in 2015 that was a first edition and it was the third in a trilogy and also, I want to congratulate you on your new release in June 2017, which is the second edition of Resilient Cities, also with Island Press. Peter Newman, thank you so much for, for coming in today and speaking to us about these really urgent issues of the future of our cities, our reliance on automobiles, and how it all impacts the climate. So thank you again. Thank you.